good to see you guys. Uh, if this is your first time here, I want to personally welcome you. My name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors. and get a chance to do a book of the preaching and get the chance to do such this morning. So if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, go ahead and raise your hand. Um, and then one of our uh, volunteers and ushers will come down the aisle and get you a copy of God's Word. If you don't own a Bible, please keep the one that we were handing out. It is our gift to you so that you can grow in an understanding and knowledge of the Lord. If you do own a Bible but you forgot it, you want to follow along, go ahead and grab one. Just make sure you put it back. It's not yours. Right? So here, here's, here's a, a couple things I want to put before you guys. Um, one, we give you guys announcements, and then um, sometimes we don't follow up a whole lot with what's happening. So we announced a few weeks ago that we are hiring um, Josh Butler, who is a pastor that's currently in downtown Portland at a church who's going to be coming alongside with us and doing a significant amount of leadership here and teaching, etc. So Josh and his wife, Holly Butler, will be moving from Portland to Phoenix uh, July 1st. And so the first week of July they will be here, which is an optimal time to move from Portland to Phoenix. Um, that's what we told them. Uh, and uh, so just be praying for them. But one, um, the transition legitimately, not just because of the weather, they've been in Oregon and in Portland their entire life. Um, and if you've ever been to Portland, especially downtown Portland, it's different than anywhere else in the world. So um, coming to Phoenix is going to be a transition for them. It's going to be difficult for them, not just for the weather, but also their family, um, their kids been able to get adjusted in the school and so forth. And I know many of you guys are excited to meet and know Josh. Just when they get here, just be be just understanding that 1,500 people are excited to meet and know Josh and his wife and kids. And so, um, and when he comes, we have to promise that if you do have him over for dinner, that we do not do casseroles, right? Guys, we got to promise. Like, do something else. Um, and so that would be that some of you guys are like, really, you guys don't like casseroles? No. Um, and so just, just, uh, just, just promise that, just promise that. Okay, next week, we're going to take a break off of Ephesians. And we're going to talk about more in-house stuff, like who we are as a church. I mean, this is something that we wanted to do is come back by three times a year. We started off with the series, um, Seeking the Shalom of the City, the beginning of the year in January. We're going to come back through just one week of, like, what does that look like? Uh, what are we doing? Ways in which we can continue to be the church um, um, in Christ, one of the churches here in the valley, but particularly as Redemption Tempe. And so uh, I, I'm hoping that you guys are able to be here next week. Uh, there'll be some things that we'll talk through that pertain to us as a church. Again, that's, uh, that's going to happen next week. All right, that's all I have. So we're going to continue here in Ephesians. And so if you should be in Ephesians chapter 4, we're, we're looking at the first few verses here. And we, we're in a point now in Ephesians where there's a transition. And what I mean by that is the book in itself is six chapters. And it does kind of have um, an emphasis that breaks right in the way that the book is um, laid out. So the first three chapters um, reveals who God is, what God is like, what he's up to, what he's doing in and through us, how he's reconciling us. It's the work of God. And then the last three chapters are because or in response to the work of God, that those who would find themselves in Christ, who would believe and be followers of Jesus, the church, how we ought to live. And so um, Paul starts off with what he's been saying, is talking about unity, how God in Christ has always cre already created this unity, and now how we, it's what we'll talk about today, begin to live in that unity. And primarily, it's talking about Christian oneness. And so we'll spend the bulk of our time looking at some of the ways or the postures of which Paul gives us and how we can live in unity, and then we'll come back and talk about the gifts and what does it mean to be the church, how we live in relationship, family, and so forth, and if you're doing that really well, how there's spiritual attack, and we'll talk about that in Ephesians chapter 6, and then we'll conclude our series in Ephesians sometime in October, um, and then we'll go from there. So that's where we're going to be um, for the next several, several, several weeks. 
Um, but today, talking about oneness, and, and more than just oneness, zeroing in on what does it look like for us to be one with each other and the Christian faith. So as we talked about race and reconciliation, um, many people, many of you guys, ask, like, what is our next steps? What can we do? What structures are we going to build? There's no next steps, and there's no structures yet. Because I still don't think that we as a church realize that structures and steps are needed, but apart from us deeply resting in the gospel of Jesus, relating to each other as human beings in need of a savior, we can't have steps. Um, because steps in themselves are some ways for us to feel like we've attained something, when really we have to realize it's not something we attain, it's something God has already accomplished that we live into. And so, so, so yeah, so we're going to spend some time talking about that today. But before we do, um, let's pray and ask God by his spirit to bless our time, uh, bring conviction and encouragement. God, I'm thankful that we can even have just that moment, six seconds of silence. Which makes us even in six seconds uncomfortable. Wondering what's next. Lord, because we are so hurried in our lives, Lord, that we actually might miss out on the silence of where you speak and how you move. So we pray, Lord, um, in the mundane and the routine and the habits and the rituals of our day and our lives, that it would be centered um, around your son, Jesus, that even in this moment that you would reorient us around you, knowing we need space, Lord, to be known by you, to be loved by you, to take that knowing and being loved and then give it to our brothers and sisters in Christ. That before that we could even be witnesses to the rest of the world, God, we have to know that in which we are witnessing. And so, Father, I pray for a deep intimacy with God and with others. That is not something that is wildly pragmatic, but something, Lord, that only finds its joy centered in your son, Jesus. So, Father, would you take the word and by the spirit today, would you, would you water the lives of your people? That we may all be, Lord, humbled, that we may be convicted, Lord, that we may be encouraged, that we may be inspired by the Spirit collectively to live and be who you have called us to be. God, there are many people in this room that are coming uh, to hear your word for wildly different reasons, and I pray that you would have a word for them, that you would meet them, Lord, that you would nourish their souls, old and young. God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things is that you can't help but um, notice if you're living in Tempe, almost anywhere in Phoenix is, there's always construction and there's like a new building or new something that's, that's going up. And so we live close to, uh, to, to ASU, and so there's always like some building or something, some new American university thing that's happening, right? And, and so we're, I'm, the other day I'm driving down uh, Rural, um, south on Rural, and I get to the corner there on university, and there's, you know, there's a lot that's been empty there for a while that used to be like where the fraternity houses were, but they're not there anymore for whatever reason. And, and um, there's this coming soon sign. And you've seen this no matter what the construction or renovation may be. Coming soon, and, and there's like a fence up, and there's some work that's happening. And around the fence is usually like a picture of what is coming soon. And they give you like a picture or an idea of what you can expect and what you can hope to come. And so this particular one has, I mean, it just looks fun, right? I mean, there's people there riding bikes. There's people having coffee. Um, and, you know, they, they make it like, you know, everyone of every nation and tribe getting along, right? Like everything's like the way that it's never been, but, but somehow will be. 
right, that like there's this picture, and then there's usually a sign that says, coming soon. Now, there's already work that has been done, and the work that has been done hasn't been visually seen fully yet, because the work usually is the designer, the architect, the people that they get the permits from the city, the money that has to be raised. So a ton of money and a lot of work that has already been prepared, and now it's on the, the, the next people, the construction workers, to come in and complete the task of the designer. And the task that they have to complete needs to look to the image that they put there, um, and it has to be according to that person or people who have designed it so that it could be um, something that it ought to be, maybe something that it never was, okay? Um, I say that to go, that's what Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is like. It is the designer of all of the universe who's saying, this is what it was like, but now I'm creating something that has never been. Not just in people, but in all of human history and all the universe. And the, and the work has been done in Christ, meaning that God has actively and decisively done a work in the life and the death and the resurrection of his son Jesus, of which he has now welcomed us to participate in. That, that we have a window and through the work of Christ that we enter into by faith. And we, we chapter 1 lets us know that we receive the forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future. That, that we have a window into the work of the designer of what he's doing, that we have now received the Holy Spirit. That God is not going to jettison his relationship with us, but he's given us the Holy Spirit until we can fully be realized in that communion of Father, Son, and Spirit together. That, that, that we see the plans and the direction of God as the designer, that in, in chapter 1 it says that he's uniting all things in the work and through the work of Jesus. We even see what it used to look like. And that we were separated from this God. And how through the work of his son, that he's laid down his life in order that we may be lifted up. That we see that the, this designer doesn't just have plans for us to just sit idle and watch, but he wants us to participate. That he's got a work in which he's prepared beforehand for us that we should step into that work. And we've seen through another window that that work happens to be this same God who sent his son, who is now not only reconciled us to himself, but is reconciling Jew and Gentile, Democrat and Republican, rich and poor, old and young, able-bodied and non-able-bodied together to create a new humanity that's in Christ Jesus. And that this particular humanity will be a display when they live in this unity for the rest of the world to know what this designer is like and then what world is to come. And so we, as the church, when we center our lives around Christ and have a relationship with him vertically and have oneness with God and others um, um, horizontally, that we now become, as the church, the sign to the rest of the world coming soon of what God is doing through Jesus that we participate in. So, so, so that's where chapters 1, 2, and 3 is. And then now chapters 4, 5, and 6 is our full participation of what the designers already drawn out and designed and how we now begin to live our lives in such a way that's not just rule following for the sake of rule following. It's not just obedience for the sake of obedience, but it's following the rules and obedience because now we realize that's how we experience what God has already laid out for us in Christ. The way we experience the forgiveness, we experience the love, we experience reconciliation, we experience the new heaven breaking in through the power of the gospel of the Holy Spirit is by actually living in step with what the designer has already designed. And so these are, biblically speaking, called indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives are usually what God has done already. Imperatives are commands and what we have to do. 
The problem when religion is not centered around the gospel is you actually reverse that order and you say, here's are the imperatives, what you need to do, and if you do these things, then God will do something. The gospel turns it all around and says, no, God, out of free grace, love and mercy towards sinners in spite of their sin does a work for them. Now those who by faith believe in him have a desire and an affection for him to live in his ways and his kingdom here now. That's what Paul lays out for us. And the first thing that he starts off here, and I'm going to read this whole section for us again in chapter 4. It starts with the therefore, everything we just talked about. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have called, been called, with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and end all. Paul starts off by saying, because of all that God has done, the indicatives, everything that he's already accomplished. Now, those of us who are in Christ, here's what he calls and commands and expects of us to, to, to actually experience his love. Not just have it, to experience it, is he says, I urge you as a prisoner of the Lord. And first, I want to just pause here and go, when Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord, he's talking about himself, and he's not speaking in metaphorical language. He's not saying it's kind of like being a prisoner for the Lord. No, as Paul writes these words, he's in prison. And he's, he's in prison because of what he believes and lives out of his faith of Jesus Christ. We have to slow down and listen to that because sometimes we don't believe or remember that the faith in which we proclaim is a costly faith. That it's not something in which we enter into for our own convenience. Christianity, following Jesus, is not a religion of convenience. We've made church a place of convenience, but following Jesus is not a condition of convenience. We, we, we participate in Christianity in church oftentimes and as the way that fits us best in a very consumeristic relationship, not a covenantal relationship. So a consumeristic relationship, we know if there's a product that you have and it's at a price that I delight, then we can relate in this relationship. However, if there's a product from down the street that may be a little bit cheaper, that may fit my needs because things have changed, then I have to leave this particular relationship because you know what? That was the terms of agreement to begin with because it's a consumeristic relationship. It's really about my benefit and your benefit. We'll figure it out. Covenant and the way God relates to us is actually I'm in the relationship not so much for what I can get, but for what I can give. And that means no matter what, as long as I'm here to get to give, then I'm, I'm going to find my joy in giving. That's what the gospel is all about. Is it not that God said, um, ultimately, what can I benefit from gaining humanity? But what can humanity get and benefit from gaining God, of which they rejected? And yet God willingly enters into the person of Christ, and he says this, the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. There was a joy that was set before him, something that he was willing to leave the comforts of heaven to come and establish here, something that did not exist in the Godhead, Father, Son, and, and, and Spirit, that he delighted and wanted. And the only thing we can see of what that joy was that allowed him to endure the cross was us. And so the, the relationship is that our life has to be 
It's called to be a costly life and following Jesus Christ. That the things of the religion of Jesus, of following Jesus, is not something that's supposed to make us comfortable. It's the Spirit of God that in, terms of, in times of turmoil and chaos and uncertainty, that he becomes our comfort. And the way the Bible teaches is, the way we experience his comfort is actually with the people to the right and the left and in front and behind us. It's the people who are in Christ Jesus. But if we don't have a oneness and a unity, the reason why we may be not experiencing the comfort and the joy of the Lord is because we're actually not living according to the design of the designer in which he's laid out for us. Paul says, I as a prisoner, this is costly. Here's what I urge you to do. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, when you hear that at first, at first glance, you go, worthy means like, I want you to do something so that you prove your worth. That's not what he's saying. You've already ultimately um, had your worthiness from, from God and what he's done, not from what you can do. He's saying, if you already have that, I want you to walk in that way. So this is not so much about your performance as it is about your privilege. This is not so much um, only or merely the expectation that God has of you. Um, for you can have a God-given expectation. Um, it's far more than that. It's actually that when you live in obedience and walking and following Christ as a community, that you have this God-given experience. That God desires for us to know and receive the things in which he's given us that we may experience it. But we cannot receive those things if we're not living like, walking in step in a manner in such a way that begins to reflect chapters 1, 2, and 3. And that is our God has in Christ rescued and redeemed us for a new life in this world. That we may participate in the life and love of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I urge you. And what he's talking about here in the context is, I want you to be one. How do you know he's talking about that? Because that's all he's been talking about for like the past seven weeks. Or all I've been talking about for the past seven weeks. Right? So here's what he says. Continuing, I urge you. He urges us. And what is it? He goes, walk in a manner you called to, um, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, uh, the spirit and the bond of peace. Um, there is one body. One spirit, just as you were called, to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So when it comes to this, he kind of gives some postures that we have for, for this oneness. Like I said, we'll get to structures and we'll get to systems at some point. But right now, like, what is, what is the gospel calling us to? Like, what are the foundations that we need before we can go anywhere? The first thing he says here is he calls us to humility, Right? With all humility. Another word for that is lowliness. And you got to understand the context here. Humility in Christian circles today is, like, ideal. Like, you want people to be humble. Like, you expect, like, oh, I expect someone who's walked with the Lord to be humble. That was not a common word in the Roman Greco world. In fact, the, when it was used, it was used in a derogatory term as a negative. Like, nobody would ever want to be lowly or humble until Jesus that Jesus truly did begin to change the culture on this because he embodied things that just seemingly did not go together, that, that he himself was very powerful, and yet he displayed himself as washing feet, that he had authority in heaven, and yet he saw himself giving it away to his disciples. And so for him to be humble, it became the, the identity or flowing from the identity of those who would follow him. So Paul goes, there's no way you're going to have the oneness that the Bible talks about if there's not... 
And we know that the opposite of humility, the enemy of humility, is pride. Humility in itself is not acting humble, right? We can all act humble, and that is actually just prideful, <laughs> right? And, this, and humility is not false humility. Like, it, it's annoying, right? It's annoying when, so, when someone says, like, hey, man, you're really good at this. No, I'm not. You know, I'm, I'm actually really bad. It's like, you know what? Now I don't even like you. <laughs> so, the, the, like, humility is not denying your personality, your talents, your gifts, or that you're good at something and so forth. That's not it. That's not, that's not it. Humility is a posture in which we have that looks like Christ. Christ never said, hey, are you the son of God? No, no, not me. I'm just, I'm just a young black man trying to expand my horizons and better myself and brighten my future, right? He never says that. He goes, I am who you say I am. Like, that, that he's still humble, right? I love, in terms of like one of the most humble lines, and yet doesn't seem to be humble in the Bible is, um, in the book of Numbers, I believe, it says, now Moses was the most humble man who walked the earth, right? And you know who wrote Numbers? Moses, right? <laughs> he's like, wow, watch this, right? <laughs> Now, having said that, he's the only one who can say he's humble, right? If you say you're humble, you've kind of lost humility. So, you have a posture here. And here it is. In the posture of oneness, again, not sameness. You're going to be different. The humility here that is described, and it's also, uh, the word actually is lowly. It is choosing to place yourself under another and others for the sake of others. Um, and even more so. I say it's got to go deeper than that. Like, we can talk race and even political division and so forth, and we begin to address even then, it's not surface level, but it's not deep. Like, it's really not like what gets here actually flows from the fact here. Humility is looking at every single person as they are humans. Not, not human doings, human beings. We relate to people off what they do or what they don't do. And yet, that's not how they were created. We were created human, human beings, ultimately created in the image of God. So if we started with people in the same starting point that God started, like image bearers of God, we may actually realize that their dignity, dignity and value does not come from what they can or cannot do, what they have or have not done. So therefore, no, no matter where they are on a spectrum, they are still human beings created like ourselves in the image of God. We understand that that image, because of sin, has been broken, but not obliterated. And the brokenness of sin just means we don't reflect it as well as we ought. That should create humility in us as we look at others, because we are equally created in the image of God and equally as broken as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're not even talking about those who are not in Christ. We'll get to there. Paul's saying we can't even get to the rest of the world because we can't even take care of the stuff that's inside the house. So, so he's saying, um, have this sort of humility. And you say, what's the posture? What does this look like? Jesus usually will go, let's go to the cross. Let's go to the cross. And, if, and Philippians chapter 2 does that. The humility in which he died on the cross for us. The picture in which we see, because in some ways, a cross-centered life sometimes we look as like just a one-time event. What Jesus shows us in his life is washing feet. And you guys know this story. And if you don't know the story, I'm going to tell you briefly right now is that in that day, it was the servant who would get the bowl, and the servant would get down, and he would wash feet. 
and the feet would be washed because they walked around in sandals and they walked around dirt and people's feet were dirty and you can come in and say, um, like we would say, come in, do you want a drink of water or anything like that? Um, you would walk in and you would expect somebody to, to wash your feet. You were like, oh yeah, thanks for washing my feet. I appreciate that. Um, Jesus comes in as the most powerful in this room and then he reverses and says, if you're going to be powerful, if you're going to be capable, then you actually need to wash feet. And not only do we need to wash feet, some of us, we are comfortable being in the position of metaphorically washing the feet of another. We have to allow our feet to be washed as well. And that was part of the issues with the disciples. Like, no, nah, you can't wash my feet. Do you see my feet? Right? <laughs> and we have to put ourselves in positions to not just be teachers, but also to be learners. Not to be those who do, but also allow those things to be done to ourselves. And let's just be honest, that's when our pride is revealed the most. Right? We are notorious for complaining as a people. We have like a gift of complaining. And not just this church people. Um, and yet, we don't have the gift of letting our needs be known that somebody could actually help us in moments that we're weak. Right? Like that, like if people will say, man, six weeks ago was hard. What was going on? Man, this was going on. Did you tell anybody? Nah, I gave it to the Lord. I'm like, no, that's not what he says, though. He didn't take it. <laughs> so, 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 so what does this look like? Oftentimes, oftentimes, and we'll keep saying, oftentimes, if not majority of the time, um, it's listening to the people on the margins who are part of the faith. Most of the books we read, most of the things we hear, most of the things in which we quote, we love, the pastors who we like to podcast or listen to are usually very strong um, gifted, charismatic, able-bodied people, right? We, we don't often hear from those um, on the margins because they don't have a loud voice. We don't often hear from those people whose backs are against the wall and who still believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most of the people in whom we hear and we learn from are people who actually have a really, really, for the most part, good life. And that's not a bad thing. I just think we're missing out on what it looks like to really be one if we don't hear from those voices. Because if they're in the position that they've been in and they still can hold out to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gives us hope because that means if we ever have our backs against the wall, the gospel is still good news. So, so there, there's, there's a level in which we have to go, we have to hear, and not just in our own congregation, but in the Christian world in which we live. So simple, um, just one thing. I'm, listening to, I'm sitting down this week with a friend of mine. And we're talking about a bunch of stuff. And then finally we got down to kids. And I asked a question. I said, I need to ask you a serious question. What is it like to be you? And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, what is it like to be you, to be married to your wife and, and to have a kid? They have a kid that's, um, that has all sorts of complications. And for them to do life is wildly different for me and my kids. I say things like, oh, I couldn't, I'm, I'm so glad when my kids got to the age where they can get in the car by themselves and get unbuckled and unbuckled and shower and like all of these able-bodied things, you, you may never receive that from your child. Your child, what is it like to be you? And what he gave me and what I was able to receive and with plenty of people like him and his wife was something wildly different in perspective about my faith and about um, what's lacking in my faith, what's needed in my faith, that there was no guilt. There was no like, oh, I shall feel bad that my kids are. No, no, no. It was going, we are a family and we are one, and I'm missing out when I don't hear that part. And there's a lot of people that we don't show humility to because we think it's just behaviorals instead of a posture of constantly saying, there's something you have that I can, I can learn from as opposed to there's something I have and you need it. Uh, so so there's, there's, there's a, yeah. See? The nine o'clock, they wasn't dang it. They was just like, 
Hey, I don't know what they was doing. I knew, I knew it was, I thought it was, I thought that was pretty good, but at nine o'clock I didn't, they didn't really let me know. So I was like, all right, maybe just, maybe just be humble, you know, so. <laughs> So that, but that, that particular posture out of the ones that Paul gives happens to be the one I think we need the most, and that is looking at other people as co-image bearers and starting there to unity. But he says this, and they go together. He says, humility and gentleness. And let me just briefly describe gentleness. Gentleness is this, the word there is actually um, what we use for meekness, right? But people don't like meekness. People don't like the word meekness. Like, nobody wants to be described as like, yeah, well, he's meek, right? Like, if you were talking to um, a single gal you knew, and you're like, I got this guy for you. It's like, what he's like? Oh, he loves Jesus. Okay, what he's like? He's got a job. Okay, what he's like? He's meek. Uh, Right? No one, no one likes being meek, right? It's somehow like no one's like attracted to like, yo, his meek game is ridiculous, right? Um, and I know somebody's waiting on a meek meal reference, not happening. And so, so, so you, have, you have meekness. But meekness in itself, and maybe because it sounds like it, it gets often translated or confused with weakness, right? And it's, it's not weakness. So Jesus himself, by the way, describes himself, and he's described as someone who's being meek. I don't know why you would have a problem being described the way Jesus is, but... Jesus, Jesus describes meek. Meekness is not weakness. In fact, it's the opposite. It's one who has strength, ability, posture, personality, and chooses to withgo their rights for the sake of the other to be elevated. Like that, like that right there is what he's talking about, is that you withgo your privileges and purposes for a season for the sake that somebody else who may not have it may be elevated. So he's saying, for oneness, it may be in Christian community that I might have something to give, but for the sake of the whole, somebody else needs to give, even if what they can give is not as good as I can give. That happens to be really, really good. So how does this play out like in just like a very mundane way? When you're in a small group or a redemption community where, according to Greg, you're starting to like, not like the people in that community, but... Um, and usually there's somebody who knows a little bit more of Scripture. And oftentimes when the question is thrown out, whatever the question may be, it defers towards him or her. When it really is, him or her, usually people like me, need to shut up and let it be quiet, even if it's awkward, to allow somebody else to say something. Even, hear me, even if it may not be biblically all the way that accurate. And are you saying, oh, should we be false doctrine? No, they just need to be heard and shaped. Because then we'll come to truth. You have to trust the Spirit of God is more important for you understanding the Bible than your leaders. Right? Like, we care, but the Spirit cares way more. We love you, but thankfully God loves you way more. Right? And so there, there, there's a picture there of meekness is something we should desire if we have a position of strength and going, how can I step out in order for somebody else to have that? Because that actually seeks oneness. It's not, it doesn't look as successful, right? All right, not in the notes, but this is how churches are too, in some ways. The way a church particularly could grow, at least in our day in America, is if you have someone who's relatively gifted at preaching and teaching, right? You want that person to preach even more because people usually come, for whatever reason, for the preacher, right? Not a good reason to come. Not a bad reason, but not the best reason. And what happens is if that preacher can preach, I don't know, out of 52 times a week, can preach 45 to 50 times, chances are more people will come, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems like it's a better church as opposed to actually hearing the plurality of different voices and different teachings and so forth. You may say, is that a plug to say you're not going to preach more? You guys have already noticed I haven't been preaching more. It's already been done. So there's, there's, there, but there is a sense of going, it's actually better and healthier for the actual growth of a particular church, community, small group, et cetera. Amen? All right, perfect. Um, you, have, you have humility, 
And then you also have meekness or gentleness. And then he says this, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and bond of peace. And he says patience. We're all like, we want to be humble. We want, yes, now we want to be meek. Yes, Jesus is Lord. We want to be meek. And then it comes to patience. When it says bearing with patience uh, and forbearing, it's like literally forbearing, forbearing patience with love. This is putting up with people, right? This is when people tick you off, when people make you mad, when people upset you, when they get on your everlast nerve, right? Like that, that is that. And these are not, again, these are people in church. These are Christ-following people. One, Paul knows it's inevitable. Like it is inevitable. Like you're never going to be in an, a church environment where it completely dissatisfies you. Like my rule of thumb, one man's opinion, one man's opinion. If you like 60 to 65% of the church that you go to, you could be a member. Um, if you like 65 to maybe 75%, you could like be in like, you know, you can be a high volunteer. You could, if you like 80 to 85%, you can actually be on staff and be like a pastor and stuff. Um, if you like 100% of your church, you're a dictator. That means everything that is happening is because it's what you want. Like, nobody really likes everything that's going on. And I know you're reading through the lines. Does that mean you like everything? No, but I don't need to. And it's not that I dislike things. It's just going, if I would do certain things my own way, things would be done my own way. But you know what? It'd probably just be me and Holly. And Holly would be here because she was married to me. <laughs> so you, 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 have, you, you have to be able to have here. He says, this patience. you got to put up with people. And this, this, this is not just putting up with people. It's putting up with people for a long time. And this is why this is convicting. This whole sermon has been convicting me. I am very quick, according to the people closest to me in my life, of just writing people off. You do this over and over again, keep doing it, I'm just not going to be around. Um, I don't have that much patience with certain things. And God's saying, you don't get a chance to make it yet. You don't get, you know, your life was bought at a high price. You don't belong to yourself. If you're in Christ, you don't belong to yourself. Quit trying to think and believe the illusion of autonomy. There's no autonomy. Either you've been shaped by this culture, which all of us are, or you've been shaped by the gospel, but you've been shaped by something. You think you're making the choices in a vacuum, but there's no vacuum. The vacuum in itself is shaped by something. There, the, 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 the picture here is going, if we are in Christ, I have to put up with you, you got to put up with me. And that doesn't mean we ignore issues, we don't argue, we don't have, uh, di like, disagreements. It's saying that we don't have divisions. It doesn't mean, like, this is the same Paul who, by the way, this is, this is not saying it's all going to be kumbaya, whatever that even means, right? This, this is the same Paul who we read about in Acts when we were in that, that book a few, few years ago, is, said he got rid of Mark, remember? He went to Barnabas, and he's like, hey, Mark's tripping. This is a paraphrase, but he was saying Mark's tripping. And, Mar and Barnabas was like, no, Mark's, Mark's tight. He goes, okay, well, how about this? You take Mark, I'll take Silas, I'll go here, you go there. So, and it was fine, it was written. No one said, oh, that was sin. It was, there was disagreement, but there was still unity. Now, what you know is later on in Paul's writings, he's like, hey, bring Mark to me. Like when he's in prison, he goes, I need, if, you, if you bring anybody, bring Mark to me. There, there, there is a picture of long, long patience and suffering that will call for oneness. And that is... People will bother you. Um, everybody in here has been, has had to be put up with somebody, right, in the faith. And if you're here and you're going, I have not had to put up with anybody. Everybody's been putting up with you, <laughs> right? And just, 
And just personally, why it convicts me is my natural, apart from the gospel proclivity, is once I get something, I've, I've, gotten, I've gotten there, and now it's frustrating to me when people can't get there. And it's almost like I have this spiritual amnesia that I don't remember that it was people in my life that allowed me to get there and the patience they showed me to get there. And how can I not show that patience towards somebody else? And then who the heck gets to decide, gets to decide what getting there is or where it's at other than God? So that's just for me, maybe for some of you too. Paul, Paul begins to wrap this section up and he says this, is that this is all happening and bearing with another in love and it's eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. And when he says eager to maintain, because Christian, as Christians, we don't create unity. Just understand this. We don't create unity. We only maintain what God has already done. Like it's not something for us to create. This is God's work. We enter into it by faith and grace and we walk into it because we've been called into this sort of work. And the fact is everybody's been called in this sort of work. If you are in Christ Jesus, we've all been called in this sort of work. And then after he gives these postures, he lays down the theological framework that keeps us in place for unity. And that is that we all belong to God and that God is the father of all who are in Christ Jesus. That it's one family, that God doesn't have multiple families and therefore this family needs to be connected to the father, the spirit, and the son in such a way that we be to participate in the union of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. Different, um, not the same, yet one, in the same way that the Christian faith is. And so he, he says this, which was somewhat of an early church confession here, beginning at verse 4. He goes, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If you get what Paul is saying here, there's one God, one baptism, one faith. He's trying to get, there is a oneness here. Now, will we have doctrinal distinctives? Absolutely. Or will church, churches and local churches have different doctrinal distinctives? Absolutely. But should we be one? Absolutely. Okay, what does this look like for us? Just on a, on a, I'm going to give you a practical level. We should no longer or confess and repent of saying anything bad about another church especially churches in our own city. Well, they don't do it like this. Uh, let them do what they do, right? Um, if there is an orthodox belief that God created this world and that God put on flesh in spite of our sin and sent his son Jesus to redeem that all who would believe by faith and grace will have eternal life, this God is coming to rescue and renew all of creation. Okay, you have the gospel, um, we, we can't, well, they do these things, they, they have lasers, they have lights. Listen, that's none of your business, right? Let them have their lasers and lights, why are you hating, right? And I've hated, right? I think I've set this culture because the things that bother me about certain things, I'm just like, Ugh. but you know what? That's not how you create unity. And you say, okay, what about, because this is, this is, Jesus says, they, speaking of those who don't know Christ, will know me, speaking of himself, by your love. What if we ain't loving each other? Then who's at fault if those who don't know Jesus aren't coming to know Jesus? Think about the silly, stupid things we do as Christians, which is a lot. But, I mean, we're arguing over if somebody is a mega church or a small church or this type of church when there are millions of people that don't know Jesus. We, we need to redirect our energies to loving God, loving each other that the world may know. So, so it's like this, um, even a message like this that is very inward focused towards Christians and Christians relationship still has an evangelist, evangelistic thrust and, and here's why. All right, think about this and I'll close with this, this um, 
this analogy. So you, we've all like been around people or you've been around people that have an incredible relationship, friendships, like marriage, so forth. And when you're around them, like there's a party that goes like, Man, I want some of that. Like, right. Like my wife and I, we know a couple who fortunately tonight we get to hang out with and they they just model prayer and loving each other and laughing and fun. And, and they just combine like like deep understanding of Jesus and fun and relationship with love. And we just love, like, their relationship just looks like, yes, I want that. Like, you know people like that? Some of you do. Some of you are like, no, I, I don't. Hopefully one day you will, will find that, all right? But we all know people like this. People, when you're around them, um, especially married couples, and they always fight, and it makes you feel uncomfortable, like you shouldn't be in the room. Like, they start saying things to each other, like, I don't even think I should be here right now, right? You just made everybody uncomfortable like you know you know people like that you've had it like man it was like that one time when you did this and you're like man we weren't even there at that one time why are we here and it makes everybody uncomfortable right and and it and it does not portray a picture of like yeah that's what i want right like that looks can we do that like right now like that's not at all all right if the world those not in christ will know him jesus by our love our oneness and yet all we're doing is bickering, it makes it really awkward and confusing. And at worst, it makes them go, we don't want that. They don't even know if they're one. Why would we enter into that? And this is not something new. This letter was written years and years and years ago. And Paul knew this is something we have to strive for. Walk in humility and gentleness in the love of the Lord. One faith, one baptism, one father, all holding this together in order that we may reflect what the designer is doing. And when we do this in humility and patience, now we have a sign up that says coming soon. This is what God is like. Do you want to get in on this? And the world may begin to know through our love what our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ is like. Amen? All right. Close your Bibles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life and love that you've given us in Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit in which you've given us through Jesus and through Jesus that we can come to you as Father. That you give us a picture of what unity and oneness looks like just by being God. And we are created in your image. And Father, we ask for the redeeming work of your spirit through the work of Christ to make us look as a community more and more like Jesus. That we would love our brothers and sisters in deep ways. Lord, being honest and truthful. And yet, Lord, not dividing. God, we pray for your gospel to go forth in this city that through the ministry of your spirit and Christ and us that people may come to know you. That we would have a clear image that you, God, as the designer, what you are building in and through us in this community. That through this church, through the churches that surround us, through the churches in the city of Tempe, Father, that the gospel of Jesus Christ may go forth and the kingdom of God will be realized, God, through the people. As we follow you. God, we ask for your strength, we ask for your encouragement, we ask for the continued understanding and living out of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.